Welcome to the latest edition of the Positive Leadership Podcast. This is JP. And thanks to all of you for making the time to listen, to engage. And please, let's keep the feedback coming. And it's great to know that increasingly we are building community of positive leaders around the world as you get more engaged. My guest today is Jiro Bilimoria, who's been a serial social entrepreneur for 20 years. She's the founder of several NGOs with a core focus on empowering youth, something I'm very passionate about too, uh, I must say, with my own family's foundation, Live for Good. Jiro is one of the most awarded change makers in the world. She's a Nashoka Fellow, she's a Schwab Fellow, but she's been also given a social entrepreneurship award from the Skull Foundation. Born in Bombay in India, she now lives in the Netherlands with her husband and two children, where she founded the One Family Foundation. We hope that by the end of this conversation, you will be inspired as much as I've been for many years now. So very warm welcome, Jiro, to the Positive Digit Podcast. It's a pleasure, a delight to have you join us today. Thank you very much, JP. I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you. So, Jiro, you know, growing up, you seem to be very influenced by your parents and their commitments to the wider community. Can you tell us more about uh, your childhood, your parents? You know, growing up in that household, with such a strong sense of service, shaped you. Yes, I am really lucky and blessed to have parents who are as amazing as mine. Uh, and I always say my parents were the perfect yin and yang and the perfect balance in life because my mom was the intellectual social worker, social change agent, and she had a lot of theory. And my father, and she did a lot of social work and change. And my father just believed that if you have enough, you have to help everyone around you. So I was brought up with a very strong sense of duty that you have to help whoever is around, whoever is the community. Uh, if we ever walked in the streets and, you know, in India, there are several people who live on the streets. My yeah. father knew all of them by name. Hmm. There was always a good word to talk to them, to share and like uh, be with them and do what he could. So I always grew up. My mother, on the other hand, was a professional social worker. She worked in the slum communities and she'd say, you need to come, you need to see what is there and you need to see how you can help. So I was brought up with a mix of that. And I, when I was in the seventh grade, my mom said, it's nice to help people, but you need to know how and why. Hmm. So research is very important. So yeah. and seventh, when I was in seventh grade to earn pocket money, I actually had to do research and data analysis for my mother hmm. on adoption because at that point she was studying inter-country adoption. <laughs> so it was a really nice blend. So of you did some parents. research at seven? <laughs> at, uh, in seventh grade, yeah. So I was yeah. around 10, yeah. yeah. Yes, yeah. amazing. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really struck, uh, Jiro, by how much, again, our parents can, can shape us and, and have a profound impact for a number of us to become what I'm calling entrepreneurs of our lives, right? Yes. And I was having a discussion with Arena Uffington recently in my last podcast episode, but also uh, another French, uh, basically both social entrepreneur, but really uh, investor as well, and business leader, Clara Guimard in my home country. And they both shared how much their mother's unconditional love build their self-confidence to become what they decided to do. So as you really dis just discussed your parents, your dad, your mom, can you, can you again expand on what you did at age 11 to support the domestic workers, I think, in your own apartment block? Yeah, so that was actually um, um, 
growing up in um, an average upper middle class indian family you always have a lot of staff in the house and yeah. around right uh, so and i was sp- speaking to my mom and this is remember she's already given me a lot of uh, intellectual that I, I, sh- I think she taught me systems change when i was <laughs> you know really young and wow. she said you cannot just talk about and of course she didn't use those terms then yeah, i yeah. would have gone above me but she always said you don't need to look at just giving money you need to look at how you can change the person's life so i was always growing up on just don't give the person money teach the person to fish she said it teach the person to get their only livelihoods and stand so all of this was happening and then we have domestics in the house and in the building and ironically many of them were they were women mainly and we had mm-hmm. men also but the women were used to be beaten by their husbands their mm-hmm. savings never had any savings so the feminist part also of equal rights for women my mom was a strong feminist and my dad too he really believed in equal rights for women and uh so i was like mom on one hand you say this and on another hand uh, if you see this woman come home and you see they are abused and then we can help them but what happens later and my dad used to be the one teaching me always about money and he would mm. said jaru if you have to grow up remember mom was terrible with money you need to know and understand financial independence hmm. so i said dad if i'm having it why can't we also have it with the staff and that's where sort of it was a family discussion and then i said okay why don't we get all of them bank accounts and that time banks were not very open to giving hmm. people who were illiterate bank accounts so my parents stood i was too young my parents stood guarantee and yep. we opened bank accounts for all the women who worked with wow. us and then because it was like a family of women so then the mother in law said i want a bank account the sister in law so that's how it spread to the community in the building so i'm we- happy i'm happy to say because we are still in touch with some of them we've yeah. moved house but yeah. we are still in touch with some of them and many and the three or four whom we are who used to work for us and we are in touch with they have retired their children have got good jobs because they could pay for their education yeah and they have a pension and one of them has hmm. bought an apartment so even the person working with my brother all of them have their own apartments uh savings pensions and i think that's what's really really important if you help them in planning Look, really great to hear that story by the way very early on with your parents and family you started empowering those women obviously and and families uh, that support they were supporting all of you and maybe also as you talk about finance education it's interesting this is maybe one of the reasons you decided to study accounting in university and but also uh, took a postgraduate course i think in social work so yes. I, I, right but i'd like to get back to to bombay where you met the children on the streets uh, Jiro because mm-hmm. i think it's it's really hard for all of us uh, you know uh, so so remote from the streets in india to imagine all tough those children's lives are today so can you paint a picture what does it actually look like um well 
I always say that I had a lot of learnings from the streets and a lot of admiration for the people, uh, for the street children in Bombay. And I worked with homeless men in New York when I did my master's at the new school. And I worked with street children. And I think one of the fundamental differences is that homeless men in New York are extremely lonely hmm. and they are faceless and they are ignored. Yeah. Many of them are vets, many of them have mental health issues, and they're actually ignored. I feel as compared to that, the street kids in India, they have a tough life, they are working, they are young, they've run away from home, but there is always a family which will adopt them. Hmm. There will be a sense of community yeah. which builds around most of them. So I think that's a fundamental difference. And I say that life on the streets is not easy. It's tough. Many are rag picking. They take. But there is a very strong sense of community, which is in the streets of India, which I found as a big positive surprise as compared to the sheer depression and loneliness, which is there with the homeless people in U.S., no, I, I love the fact you, you mentioned community because I, I, I've learned so much myself, at least in some of the works I've done in my home country on. Or critical is that building that sense of community. And, and I must say, I've found a lot happening in the social entrepreneur circles when it comes to that broad and deep community engagement. So we'll get back to that later because I think you're doing some exciting work right now for the future. But let's go back again on the way you started putting your first organization, Meljo, back in 1991 to support these children? Or did you even start putting together an organization? And, you know, how did you do that, basically? <laughs> I'll take a step back because I always say it's nice to talk about success, but it's as important to talk about failure. Indeed. And the very, very... So I had studied in the US. I had helped uh, kickstart uh, United Homeless Organization, etc., etc. I came back to India and thought I'm going to start something in India. And the very first organization I actually started was Unnati, which failed. Hmm. And I say that that's why you talk about failures first. Yeah. And Unnati failed because now if I reflect back, it was an idea way, way, way ahead of its time. <laughs> Basically, it was saying that we need to, to use technology and geolocation to try to trace families back and send kids home. Wow, that was vision. <laughs> that was visionary, Jira, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so it was so ahead of its time. Technology was taking still a long way before it got there. So I think the first time I'd started that with her friend, and well, after a point, we said, you know what? We have to realize our ideas ahead. But because of that, I had started working with street kids, hmm. and I and also with school kids, and then. I said, we need to continue that. So while I was teaching at Tata Institute of Social Sciences, we always have in this, uh, and we had a very visionary, um, ex uh, how do you say, dean for the university, yeah, yeah. or director, Dr. Armaiti Desai, um, who's also a strong mentor. And she always said that a teacher cannot teach social work in isolation and ivory towers. So she always encouraged uh, academics to start field action projects. Mm. And uh, so she said, do what you want, start something, learn, fail, go for it. And one of the things I had seen in addition to so 
sort of started the key work for Childline. Hmm. But I also, while I was doing that, I was speaking to a lot of kids in school, etc. And I just felt that there's no way that private school kids really talk to municipal school kids. And there are so many stereotypes. Yeah. So many stereotypes and Meljol was basically the coming together and trying to get kids from more elitist backgrounds to talk to kids from uh, private schools, talk to kids from public schools hmm. and build bonds. That was the initial idea of Meljol. And then we had the Bombay riots. So we worked very closely to look at how to bridge that. And so from you- that emerged financial education. So it was a long journey in itself for Meljol. No, it's great to hear the, the, the foundational thinking about Meljol and, and the way you started, I guess, uh, bridging uh, different worlds together, right? You talk about private school, public school, yes. kids in the street, which I think is so important in terms of the real diversity, which is not just checking a box <laughs> with one type of person, but really bringing them all together uh, in, in a shared sense of community. And I'm sure that you'll come back later on reflecting bigger initiative you've been taking on Actually, this discussion, uh, Joe, reminds me of my conversation with Barbara Fredrickson, who, as you may know, is one of the foundational authors of positive psychology. And she said, make a sweat equity in organizing your positive emotions one day at a time. So, so really building on this growing knowledge that we have now from psychology and neurosciences, I think we now have a much better understanding on how we can manage our own positive energy between our, in ourselves, right? So in mm-hmm. your case, Jiro, I like to understand where is your energy coming from? <laughs> your brain, your guts, your heart, or all of the above? And can you share the way you, not only you manage this positive force, but even at times of failure that you already mentioned, how do you do that? Um, I think uh, I'm thinking, and um, I would say, a few different things, JP. Yeah. Um, once again, like I said, my parents instilled a strong sense of duty in me. Hmm? Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not rich, huh? But I have enough. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And that means if you have enough, I have always been brought up that you have to give back. Yes. So even when I was marrying my husband, uh, it was actually one of the first things my mother shared with him. And, you know, he was Dutch and not used to all of these things. But she <laughs> said, you know, listen, in our family, duty and giving back is as much important as anything else. And if you are getting married, remember that is part of the tradition that you should also help keep alive. And I think my husband has been fantastically supportive in that. So one is the sense of duty, which I Mm -hmm. think is important, which I've also tried to carry forward to my kids. The other is, and probably in this day and age, it's not right to say, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but is a sense of uh, spirituality. Mm -hmm. I don't say religion. I strongly say spirituality in that there is a larger force. And uh, 
you know, just doing that. And the third is being the eternal optimist on however bad life is, whatever happens, happens for the best. My colleagues roll their eyes when I say that. They're like, <laughs> it happens for a reason. I'm like, no, it happens for the best. There must be a bigger plan. So it's yeah. the spirituality which influences the positivity, if if I'm making sense. So it's duty, spirituality, and the glass is always full type of optimism which comes from the spirituality and basically who am i i'm just mm. a drop in the ocean i'm one in all the billion people that we have the billions of people that we have so knowing that essentially we are nobody and we just have to do our role in life no l love it but you have such uh, you, are, you are such a strong drop in the ocean uh, Jiro, and you are showing us the way one drop at a time can make such a big impact I, I love the fact you talk about in a way i think your core foundational values like the sense of duty that your parents uh, share with you uh, you know since your early days the spirituality and, and the way you think about the broader picture of the world, the impact you can have, and, and this incredible optimism, which I think is something I've, I've heard as well from some other uh, change makers or social entrepreneurs in the world. So I, I like Maybe to... we are all a bit too optimistic, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> Some... <laughs> that's right. Sometimes you do, but I think it's, it's better to see indeed the, 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 the glass uh, half to full, to full uh, but, and certainly not empty at all. Um, you know, uh, I'd like to understand actually the way you connected that inner conviction with the cause you embrace. You know, we, we started talking about what you've done for children's safety, financial inclusion education, basically to have a bigger impact on the world. Because many of us, you know, see things that we don't accept really that, you know, we, we, we find unacceptable, but we don't necessarily drive the changes. So, so for many of our listeners, in a way, who are truly motivated to do something about something that really revolves them, but they don't know where to start, can you share what you did? Did you have a mentor? You know, did you ask the kids? Did you face resistance? How did you initiate the change yourself, doing something about it? Yeah, sorry. Um Yeah, so I think with the street kids and with child lying, I would totally give the credit for the idea to the kid. I've always believed that if you have to start something, um, again, this is a saying which I think, I don't remember where I got it from, but you have two ears and one mouth. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's something which struck. So God gave you two years because you have to listen more than you have to speak. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, so I always say, and this is what my, my used to be with the street kids, uh, uh, we would always say, I would say, listen. And so um, uh, it always came from listening to the people I was working with or was interacting with would be the right way to say. Yeah. So Childline came from street kids saying that there were lots of uncles and didis, which they call social workers were called, yeah. but there was no one there for them in the night. So that's the reason. So they wanted something which was 24 hours where if they were being harassed by the police or they were unwell, there was a place they could call. And that's where it was started. And um, nobody really thought the idea was possible in India to have hmm. a service like that. You're talking about 25 years ago. Yes, yes. Or actually 27 because it took us two years to get it off the ground. Hmm. Um, and uh, I think the important thing was that so 
I said, if we have to do it. So we actually did a survey with street kids, which just icons where the street kids themselves filled out the survey. <laughs> wow. You know, so like a, a hospital, so the van, ambulance signal, police, they had put a stick. Just yep. those sort of icons on what sort of help we would be needing. Yep. And then it came that healthcare was probably the biggest need of the street kids, harm with police, and how to achieve it. So the whole infrastructure of Childline was built around what would be the best way for street kids. And the reason we didn't start with a local number, then I could have started the hmm. service overnight, but it took us two years to get a toll-free number, is because the street kids said that we travel from Bombay to Goa to Delhi to Bangalore, wherever, by just getting on a train. And then we want to have something where we have the same number everywhere. And that was the reason why we really advocated for a toll-free number, which did yeah. take us a long time to get. So, yeah, I think my one tip and coaching tip is just listen to the people you listen. want to do it with. That's the first tip. Second is follow your intuition. There'll always be obstacles, but don't look at them as obstacles. Look at them as challenges for learning from it. Because, you know, like I could have said, oh, nobody wants to do this, so we are not going to do it. Or how can we get a toll-free number? So just persevere when you look at it. And... Uh, um, and I also always say, now this is the intellectual part of me saying, yeah. always try to have a business plan in place when you're starting. Mm. And the business plan will change all, within the time. Two, <laughs> all the time, but at least you have a road yes. and you know where you have to go. So, again, there are several ways you can reach Rome and you'll but you at least need to know where you have to reach. Otherwise, you're all over the place. Yeah. So you need to have that in your brain. So these were just my three tips I would give. And let it flow. Let it flow, yeah. No, fantastic advice, uh, Jero. I mean, it reminds me actually of a conversation I had recently with uh, Michael Bungestani. He, he, he's really one of the best coaches I've, I've heard about in the world. I've been actually coached by him uh, real, uh, in real life wow. as well. And, uh, and, and, and Michael talked about his, his philosophy of coaching in three worlds. He said, be curious often and mm -hmm. be lazy. What he means by that is the following. Be curious in the sense of listening, 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 as opposed to talking, talking. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, often in a sense that that coaching posture is something you can repeat all the time. It could be two minutes, it could be five, it could be more. And be lazy in the sense that don't, 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 don't be mistaken about this world, which is a strong world for a social entrepreneur. <laughs> well, not lazy. Uh, it's about really, uh, you know, providing the safety uh, in terms of uh, in terms of connection with someone in terms of building confidence with someone that you love to help so that that person can actually grow by herself to find the solutions and in a way when you talk about the kids you know doing the the, the surveys in the streets <laughs> and telling you probably at the time you know what the issues were all about and what may be giving you some uh, cues about, hey, this is really what we need in terms of solution, Jiro. That's why I love your your deep tips because I think they resonate so much with what I've seen with other uh, change makers in the world, uh, Jiro. 
I think I, I think, agree. Everyone thinks the same, not same, <laughs> but similar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so uh, you know, you you are someone obviously uh, with a lot of humility, but I just want to share with all of you on on the podcast that as you established Charline India Foundation in '96, uh, you know, you grew it to be a social franchise network. I think of almost a thousand partner organizations across India. And Charline handled over 8, 10 million calls and 300,000 interventions a year. Uh, and then I think when you moved to the Netherlands, you founded an international network, Child Airplane International. So can you tell us more about the way you achieved the next step and the way you've been basically both shaping the mission? I believe that the, the mission uh, of, of a social entrepreneur organization is so critical. It is for any organization, but I think even more for such uh, such entities. And the way you, you've been uh, finding, prioritizing your resources and building a sustainable revenue model to make it work. Okay. Um, so a few questions um, I'll try to unpack. Um, um, one is with Chilang India. I don't want to take any credit. I would have started it, but there was a phenomenal team. And I think uh, we partnered with the government of India, which currently pays, I think, 90 plus percent of the resources which help mm. us to scale because foundation money, however big the foundation, is not really going to be able to give the support to have that sort of scale. Yeah. And therefore, partnering with the government not just gives the funding, but it gives access. We were able to change the laws, the policies, and all of that. So, And so there is core sustainability. So I do want to say it's not me. It's the team which is doing it and also the vision of the government to agree to take on this new model of partnering with civil society and also with corporates. Mm. So I think that was something uh, to me which was very interesting to do. In terms of moving from India where I had a very good support system and everything and then moving to the Netherlands mm -hmm. where I knew nobody but my husband and his family yeah. was a really, really big and tough shift. Yeah. Um, I probably should have been sensible and worked somewhere uh, and just, you know, done something more normal but I um, um, I had made a commitment to sort of take child helplines global before I decided to get married and as I told you there is this big sense of duty yes uh, so when we got married my husband and myself said okay you don't take a job we'll manage very well and I started child helpline but starting it alone from a house was quite difficult and also because uh, I am going to say something you will not like, so I apologize, JB, <laughs> JP, but there was a lot of racism and uh -huh. I tried to set uh -huh. up and there was yeah. a lot of pushback which I got when setting up Child mm. Helpline International. Mm. So when I initially tried to fundraise to set it up, I even had remarks like, you're Indian, you'll take the money and give it to your family. Yeah. That's when I was volunteering and we were putting in money of our own. So yeah. I think uh, it was, re and because you earlier also asked about challenges, so I think it was really, really difficult. I was lonely and sitting alone in my house and trying to get this off the ground. And that time I requested um, the helpline in the Netherlands and I said, uh, would you all be willing to give me a space to sit at least? I'm not asking for anything more, but they were scared I would take over office space because I was Indian. 
and appropriate it. So they did not even, weren't even willing to give it. Now, I say all this not to say how difficult it was, but to say that in the end, I'm really happy yeah. to say the helpline in the Netherlands became a very active member. We were yeah. able to get all the European helplines who had tried to become a network initially and failed to come together. And by bringing all of it together, we were able to come together to see what are the best practices models which were there across helplines. Yeah. And then co-create different versions of models which help Child Helpline International to scale to 100 countries in three years, 100 wow. new helplines in three years. So otherwise, it would have taken a lot longer and I could have gone on my hobby horse and said, oh, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. And it could have become, I could have gone confrontational or I could have gone, or, but I chose to go conciliatory. Hmm. And chose to talk and to listen to where the fears were coming from and address the fears. And most of them may not be conscious fears. Many were subconscious fears. But then to create the neutral space for everybody to come together to showcase that. And they were amazing people, all the helplines. Mm. And there were many people who were super amazing. And the Swedish helpline was very supportive from the beginning. The British helpline was very supportive. It took time, but everyone was able to come together. And I think if there's one thing I learned through that transition, yeah. Yeah. it is conflict gets you nowhere. But by listening, deep listening to where people are coming from and building from that is what will bring about the change we wish to see. No, fantastic insights, uh, Jiro. First of all, to, to hear about the way you've been uh in a way, transcending your 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 country uh, relocation, right? As you you move from India to the Netherlands, and then really the way you are thinking deeply about building that neutral space, which I think is so critical to to bring together so many diverse voices, right? Who might have a very different opinion in life on what should be done and how it should be done, etc. And I believe that's certainly one of the key success factors I've heard you talking about in different you know, settings on the way you build that, that impact, that scale. A little bit of follow-up question, uh, Jory, if I may, on the way you build, in a way, a revenue model, a resources model that help you scaling to the 100 countries, because it's very mysterious for people on this call, <laughs> on this podcast, right, to really understand, well... So Jiro didn't have much money, I think, and I think you're going to confirm that. You did not, right? It's always frugal innovation. How did you do that? Um, I think this is where I would like to introduce a lot of people talk about systems change yep. and uh, having the, um, how do you call it, systems change. Um, as com So there are two ways to scaling. Sorry. One way to scaling is the traditional model, like save the children, plan Oxfam where you have a big model and you build a multi-billion dollar model and yeah. then Europe collects all the money and then it distributes it to the south. Yes. Correct? That's yeah. the traditional model which is there. Uh, the model which I really use and I think works very well is at least it works for me. I am a bad fundraiser, so I'll start with that. <laughs> but it works for me is where you build on existing infrastructure. So even in Childline, that's why we created this 
social franchise a brand at all, is yeah. collaborative, what I call collaborative systems change mindsets mm. or a collaborative approach where instead of saying you need to be big to get at the seat table, I'm saying you need to build collective power mm. and bring about the change through collective power, community power and through sharing of resources. So Child Helpline's budget when we started, and I think till I handed over, it was not more than a million when hmm. we scaled. And I wow. think even now it doesn't go beyond 1.5 or 2. Wow. And the main reason is that we did not ever say we would fund the helplines. What we always said we would do is we would contact the local resources, find the local resources, work with the government to help set up the helpline. Hmm. So um, take any country, if we were traditionally to go there, uh, it would not be us imposing. We would find out who is already working in the child protection ecosystem. Get all of them together and ask them, do they think firstly they need it? And then do a needs assessment to see what would be the right sort of thing, if at all it was needed. Have the government, the donors, the mm. civil society all together at the table to decide what would be the best way after the results have come in. So yeah. if you see the whole premise is not, I have an idea and I'm going to tell you what to do. Yeah. The premise is there may be this concept. Do you think you need it? Let's first research, let's find out and let's co-create. So these are some of the principles of collaborative systems change, which I am talking about, yes. where you basically Never impose. You go in on an inclusive approach where you convene, you connect, you co-create, then you calibrate the results. You see how to get them going. You you know so that and then you celebrate successes. But essentially, the whole example for scale for me, be it with child helplines or later with Aflatoon or CYFI or even now with Catalyst, yeah. is the belief that you don't need to be big to succeed. Hmm. That if you get a lot of small players together and listen to them and build on their strengths, collective change can be much faster. No, it's so inspiring. I mean, you've been so uh, articulate <laughs> uh, to, to share your wisdom uh, during of many, many years of uh, building that systems change and and i think you know there's a lot of learning as well beyond social entrepreneurs here because i believe that in the corporate world as well by the way <laughs> there's a lot more we can do as corporations to be uh, to be also committed players of that systemic change and i think you have actually a number of corporations as well involved on you know on, on the side by side with ngos and, and governments to do that so we'll come back to that later on on the corporate world but really, really exciting. You know, talking about scaling, I mean, you've been scaling all of your life, your, your social enterprise. Uh, there's, there's this book I read a little while ago from Reid Hoffman, you know, called Master of Scale, uh, where, you know, he said, I believe that the moment almost always chooses you, but to seize that moment, you have to move fast. So in a way, can you, can you, can you actually give us your own uh, perspective on what does it mean to move fast in your own social environment? I mean, how do you decide to take a step to go from one to 100 as opposed to one to two? <laughs> because you are someone who, who is always looking at the next big, big, big step to, to, move, uh, you know, to move the impact to the next level up. 
Sure. So I'll now talk. Actually, we are in this. Um, we are currently discussing this with Catalyst 2030, where JP, you are also a member. Correct? Yes. yes and um, a pleasure to be part of that. Yes. Yeah. So in Catalyst 2030, when it was started with leading social entrepreneurs like myself, initially we had thought we would work on certain issues. But what came very strongly as the network was growing and we were listening is that members wanted country chapters hmm. because a global movement didn't really help someone in uh, a town in India or uh, who was working in a district in Kenya or, you know, or even for that matter, working in Nairobi. It didn't have direct relevance. So within a, within a short time in our incubation period, we realized that we had to shift our total strategy to focus much more on developing country chapters. Hmm. Now, we could have gone that way, which would be the traditional way, say, okay, we are going to put in this huge pot of money and then we are going to do it. But our budget in Catalyst is still very, very low, as yeah. always, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So what did we do? We went back to the membership. Uh, and this is where I say the moment has to also link to strategy. I'm a hmm. firm believer you have to have strategy. And yeah. it's not all Kumbhalaya, you know. Yes. Uh, and love for all. So we said, okay, there's, if we are listening to the membership, there is a need to have local chapters and there is a need to create a local identity. Hmm. We have limited resources. How are we going to create it? So then we took a mapping and we said, let's look at the countries where A, we can influence government policy more easily. B, we have sufficient members to be able to take this on. And C, we have someone who's willing to take on the leadership. So with that, we sort of kept certain criteria in mind. And then we said we will start with developing maybe 10 country chapters in the year. Hmm. That was our logic, correct? Because yes. you can't just run. We just used this logic and we actually developed 20 country chapters. Hmm. Because that's where the momentum and the movement was. And some are strong. Others are still, uh, you know, fledgling, really fledgling. Yeah. But we were able to see what then were the principles to help us to take to the next. So now we will consolidate the 20 or maybe 25 because a few want to join more. Consolidate. We create a structure. We create. We learn from them. We tell them what they think we should be doing. We'll create the whole infrastructure learning from these 25 more who want to do it, 25, let's say. And then yep. we will know what we need to do. Once we have this infrastructure in place, it's not we who will take it. We'll have these country chapters telling other country chapters and those telling others. So it's not the secretariat doing everything. It's working with the people who have helped co-create the panniers, so to speak, to spread the word. And therefore... Hopefully in three years, we will have, if not earlier, we hope we can have 100 country chapters in Catalyst also. And you are part of the movement, so you can watch and also give advice and help us. <laughs> Uh, I will definitely uh, look forward to spending more time on, you know, in learning from this incredible uh, community, uh, Giro uh, Catalyst 2030, which is a very exciting change movement. I, I would say that you've been inspiring. Now I'd like to, to shift gears a bit, uh, Jiro, and talk about, in a way, your own personal uh, skills, capabilities, strengths, etc. You know, because 
clearly uh, it takes uh, someone special <laughs> to do all of that at a mega scale. Uh, so can you share what you think, what you've been told, I'm sure, as you've been growing up and doing all the things, what are your unique strengths and talents that you believe really serve you really well to become a social entrepreneur and in a way kind of elaborate on that on some kind of advice as well for other change makers, emerging change makers on the way they should think about their strengths, talents to bring the best in the world? Um, can I look at it from another point, JP? Please do, please um, do. <laughs> if you don't mind. Yes. Uh, my uh, parents and my mother always said, uh, don't necessarily build things based on your strength, uh -huh. because that also comes from a point of uh, arrogance. And the one thing I don't want is mm. for you ever to have that, is actually build from your weaknesses. Interesting. Um, so, um, so if I have to look at, um, uh, if you look at the whole networks and if you look at it, I already said, I'm a terrible fundraiser, <laughs> right? Yes. Uh, so, um, I never wanted to build an organization and I don't really like asking for money or, and it's not, you know, even if it's for a cause or an issue. You know, and honestly, uh, we need to shift the whole funding world. That's a different talk we'll have at a later stage. Yeah. Uh, but so it was always try to create something which is where I don't want to have to do that. So how can you create structures where that is at the minimal? Um, another thing is um, very often change makers, there are there are two ways you can go when you're very articulate, you can speak and mm. you can lead with your personality or you can lead with strategy and with putting other people forward. Since I am, I'm talking now, but it's really not something I like being in the limelight. So the models which have been created are where there are many other people who are in the limelight. And if I have to, I will pitch in. So if yes. you've attended a Catalyst General Assembly, you'll mm. rarely hear me talking. We have two co-chairs and we have everyone else who is sharing yep. what they are doing. So again, it's leadership not with, and that's contrary to the normal model of leadership, you know, yeah. where the leader has to be up front. But it is, I think, and it will over the years become, I think, a more organic leadership where yeah. you let because and it also comes from a deep rooted ideological belief that you're just one in a billion, you mm. know, mm. and mm. everyone has a strength and you portray it. So all I'm trying to say is that for me, it's uh, and I think it it gives happiness mm. is that it's not looking at the skills. It's looking at where you compensate, where you're not good for. Another thing is I am chronically dyslexic so you'll see 10 spelling mistakes in any email i send you also jp <laughs> you know, you'll see that man. i i just um, i know that so then i would never bother with you know i'm not i try not to make the mistakes but again then i have other people who are much better taking that and leading that and making all of that happen you know yeah and it's not because i'm uncomfortable with my weaknesses i'm talking about them um, but when you build from knowing what you're not good at, you build much stronger. Yes. No, it, it, am, am I making sense? 
Yeah, no, I, I love the fact you, you, you disputed my, my question, actually, because <laughs> uh, I, I fully understand where you're coming from in many ways. Uh, on, on, you are such a humble, first of all, leader that you never want to put yourself ahead of anyone else. Uh, and I, I believe, like you, that understanding you know, your own areas of development, weaknesses, whatever you want to call that, so that in your organization you're going to create, you really are having stronger people than yourself in many of the aspects that you need to build whatever it is, right? An organization, a social enterprise, etc., is critical, absolutely, not to be blind about how much you can achieve yourself. But on the other hand, I will also challenge a bit your response saying, I think you have some wonderful strengths. You don't want to talk about that necessarily, but the way you are able to inspire a movement the way you are able to basically create that systemic change and, and the way you describe it by creating that neutral space is pretty unique. And I would call that strengths and unique talents, so Jira. <laughs> and, and yes, <laughs> you. you need more people around yourself for finance, for many other things, absolutely. And we all need others who are strong in ourselves. But, but, but I love your response in many ways, showing the, in a way, the, the, the duo of our strengths and all the other aspects that need more stronger people than yourselves to build a change. Let, let, let me build a, a, a bit on, of course, your own deep knowledge. As you know, I'm, I'm trying myself to be a practitioner for the last several years in my own foundation, Family Foundation Live for Good, yes. that unleashed the potential of hundreds of young social entrepreneurs in my home country in France. And I'm always asking myself, you know, what are the criti critical skills, attitude, mindsets we should pick when we support a cohort of new entrepreneurs. So, you know, we've got basically every year a couple of uh, new cohorts that are starting. So if you are sitting in, you know, in, in, in our own foundation at the moment where we have to pick among many, many applicants, unfortunately, we have to make some choices. It's unfortunate. Uh, you know, what would you look for and which question would you ask to those young people who want to change the world? Um, two things. Uh, one is uh, I always look for passion. So mm -hmm. how deep is the passion uh, and the perseverance and then strategy. Hmm. I, I think one of the things I firmly believe is you need to have a roadmap to wherever you're going. So, so that's why it's the emotional and the intellectual, which to me are both very important, which I talked about earlier, you know? Yes, completely. Yeah. No, so, so I would look at those, those three things. But then I would also ask you, and I have read about your foundation online, but I think what may also be interesting is to look at how can you probably shift your business model to make it inclusive for everybody? and to create an inclusive cohort. So maybe that's something we can both brainstorm and see if we can make that happen. <laughs> it's a wonderful question and something I'm debating with my, uh, not just my uh, team at the foundation, but with many other stakeholders, including or uh, you know, our existing alumni of our entrepreneurs. We have more than 260 of them now across the country to truly challenge ourselves about the way we have to broaden and deeper, uh, deepen uh, the, the inclusion of those entrepreneurs. And by the way, by design, we try to mix 
very different types of young people, people who are graduates, uh, you know, with uh, some business school, engineering schools, and people who drop from schools, uh, kids who have been also, um, you know, coming from the suburbs of uh, big cities in, in France, or coming from rural areas, or some of them having a, a handicap, being disabled as well. And, and, and the wonderful thing that happens is when you mix them all as a cohort of 50 of them, and they come together three times a year or physically for a full week, the experience you get out of that and, and the sense of community we build is just wonderful. But I'm certainly looking forward to do a much better job, Jiro, with your wisdom on, on the way we can shoot for a broader, deeper inclusion, because that's, that's, a, big, that's a big goal we have indeed. Um, yeah, because so your your the vision of your foundation is really really powerful, so you know, yeah, uh, I really so, admire it. No, oh, well, you're you're so kind given what you've achieved, <laughs> but wonderful coaching, Jiro. I take it every day, by the way, and I I, I like uh, clearly to um, to uh, to come back a little bit to the movement uh, you've been talking about, Catalyst 2030. You know, we because to be brutal brutally honest. You know, how do you expect this movement uh, to have a huge impact when many of the governments, civil society stakeholders, corporate and others are falling behind their commitments when it comes to reach the 17 United Nations uh, SDG goals, right, as we call them. So we saw what happened with COP26. And again, I want to be someone optimist, okay? We're seeing also the, the glass more than half full mm -hmm. like you. And there were some positive moves. But when you look at the 17 goals one by one, where we are with the pandemic, uh, getting us backwards in some of them, how do you see that movement helping driving the change? Um, I think it's an excellent question, JP, and it's something I always think about. So over here, I'd say if you have any ideas, please, please share. Huh? <laughs> yes. Um, as you know, and you were part of, we did this movement-wide consultation uh, where we consulted all our members. And I think one thing which emerged very strongly, which wasn't there before, is uh, that if the movement has to really achieve the SDGs, it needs to be taken seriously. Yeah. So uh, what we need to do is we actually need to create almost like a sector voice. Hmm. And that's something which is missing. Yes. Okay. So I think the first thing which has emerged from this whole consultation is how do we create a strong sector voice? And what do we need to do for that? How do we therefore? So that is the first thing which we need to do because no change can come if you're not, a, you don't have a seat at the table. Yes. Correct. And I think that's one of the big drawbacks which is happening. Uh, the governments are not, even with everything that's happened with COVID, yeah. the government really hasn't listened to the people at the front line who have done the most difficult jobs. You're right. Yes. So I think that is one big shift that Catalyst needs to be doing. Because if that, if we all come together, as I said, our collective voice is stronger than individual voice. Right. Yes, so that completely. I think is going to be the first where we can do that. And I don't think we are there yet because we are still very new and young. But to develop this whole sector of social innovation and entrepreneurship, I think that's something which we need to look at. And basically saying this is the front line. 
this is the group of people you need to listen to mm. before you make a policy. If the government is making a policy on internet, huh, or on whatever, they will consult all the big companies, right? Yes. But they don't yeah. consult the people who are actually doing the work in the social field. So I think that is one it's thing. That's a very good point. Yeah. So if that starts happening, then we are opening up a communication bridge. And slowly, like we were talking earlier, you know, once the communication bridge is open, things happen much faster. Correct. So yes. that is the first thing. The second thing is actually the whole funding system is broken. Hmm. I'm, I'm being extremely blunt over here. Yeah. Uh, there is a huge power dynamic between uh, between the way the funders fund and uh, between the way the funders fund and also they interact with social entrepreneurs, you yes. know, <laughs> and that needs to change. If there is no change over there, it's not going to work. Very so true. if people are asking for, like you said, when your 50 entrepreneurs come together, mm -hmm. there is a power which happens which changes them for good. Correct? Right. Absolutely. And for their whole life. But if you would, if it were not your own foundation and you went to a foundation and asked them for money, they would say, okay, tell us what did the 50 people actually do? Mm. Give us an impact matrix. That won't work. No, no, it won't. So, sure. so the whole the whole questions that are being asked are not really what is needed. So the whole foundation system needs to change, and I think that's something that Catalyst is very actively working on. And again, that's something because you are in this unique position of being a, a foundation person and seeing that not everything is quantifiable, you can help with. But I think that's a big change which will come. So one, getting a seat at the table, two, changing the whole funding ecosystem to make it much, much more, uh, uh, how do you say, much, much more useful to actually helping the people at the front line. Yes. And three, I think, working with the corporate sector, not just with CSR, but with sort of seeing how they can work with entrepreneurs across the whole value chain. That's another thing which we can look at. And finally, feeding all of that back into academics. So I think these are the things which Catalyst is trying to do. And I say it's, it's systems change. It's not going to happen today or tomorrow. Yeah. It may happen in three years. But once that changes the SDGs will be achieved because there's a whole narrative which has changed. Yes. Um, and with that, yeah, it will happen. V very, very clear roadmap, Jiro, uh, uh, and uh, very, very specific indeed. And just just as we are coming almost to an end, a couple of more questions. I just want to follow up on this one. On your own expectation of the corporate world when it comes to social sustainability, as you know well, uh, you know the world has changed a lot. I think last couple of years, and I, I don't think there's 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 any more acceptance of a, kind of a fake CSR. If you see what I mean, it's going to be authentic. <laughs> it's going to be real. Yeah. It's good. It's going to be connected to the real expertise of any company in the world where they do the best, and now they can apply some of the best they do to help solving some of the problems of the world. Of course, not all of them. So, how would you? I encourage a lot of business leaders on, on you know, uh, listening to the podcast on what they could do as, as corporates to, to join forces here. Um, so there are a few things. 
one at a systemic level, and I think this is what uh, we, we haven't done it now, but we will be doing it with Catalyst, is looking at can we not just have a financial balance sheet, but an impact balance sheet, which mm. is what are the externalities the country is doing. So as shareholders, I would like to ask that. How are you doing it with the environment? How are you doing it with social? You know, are you yeah. like all of so, that? So, so making making ESG real in a way, right? I mean, making uh, the, ESG real and yeah. making it part of uh, yeah. the how do you say it? the reporting? Yes, the financial reporting. So not just the financial, but the ESG reporting right. and share. So I think that is one thing which I think at an ecosystem level we are pushing, and I think it needs to be pushed much, much more. The other is uh, for several corporates along the value chain, they can work with social entrepreneurs. Mm. So we need to see how can they work with social entrepreneurs if you are a clothing manufacturer. So we have an entrepreneur looking, how are you able to make sure that actually everything that you're doing is uh, socially right, there's no child labor, et cetera, et cetera. So reflecting on the whole value chain process and making sure that it is not exploitative correct yes so yeah. you can't yeah. say that i'm the and i don't want to name any one company that's why i've stayed away from names but that company is doing this but actually it's exploiting its workers by not paying the minimum wage yeah so sort of making sure that the whole way the companies operate is fair and sustainable so if a company is giving hundred thousand jobs of it it mm. eighty thousand are uh, not at minimum wage, but at bare minimum wage, but no benefits, it doesn't work. And then they are doing the same to their suppliers. So that whole thing needs to change. That's the second. And the third is if they are doing CSR and it's not directly linked to the area of work, but they have a separate foundation because many companies are doing that to sort of make sure that the foundations are not giving like one year grants, which are of no use, but actually working with the entrepreneurs to create long term programs. You cannot build a company plant in a year. You need seven mm. years before they are going to pay off everyone knows that right gestation yes. periods that's why you have depreciation so number one for shareholders making sure that you have proper accounting and impact accounting of everything right two across the value chain and three for csr based foundations not directly linked to the company's work making sure that they give unrestricted co-created grants okay very clear very, very great, great list of uh, of uh, co well, commitments and recommendation. I would say the corporate world and and, and looking forward to uh, to propagating that dialogue between the corporate world and social entrepreneurs. Zero. Now, really, last couple of and, questions. Yes, yeah, sorry. And my last, which is very personal, if you don't mind, JP. Yes, please. Is respecting social entrepreneurs mm. and their choices. For sure. Because very often there is very lack of respect. Hmm. People don't realize that the entrepreneurs could have got as good a job in the corporate world, but have chosen to take and work in the social sector. I'm more than so agree with you. Yeah, I see so I many incredible talents. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that lack of respect is something which should also change that mindset. But I'm optimist uh, like you, Dero, and I see the world changing and looking a, a lot more at the social entrepreneurs. Or, you know, I think some, some people call them the positive impact entrepreneurs as well in the world. With a different lens, I think the expectation of the world is changing, and hopefully, the, those social entrepreneurs are going to inspire a lot more people. A couple of last questions, really, Jiro, because uh, I don't 
to keep you too busy uh, when you have so much to do <laughs> to the world of this catalyst 2030 and more. You know, we discussed a little bit about your energy before, uh, but, you know, clearly with all the challenges that the world is facing and where you are getting engaged yourself, do you ever get exhausted? Do you feel like the problems are just too big to fix at any days? So how do you keep that positivity on tough days, right? The tough moments or failures uh, as you tackle such big issues? Balance. Uh-huh. Balance and not taking your sense. I keep saying you don't take yourself too seriously, right? At least mm. I don't. Yeah. So I think that's the first thing. But balance, I think family I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I still have a lot of responsibilities with my family, my children. Um, so I think there is balance and I think that's really, really, really important. Having the balance between your professional and your personal life, having amazing friends, having family, I think. So if you have a bad day and you've worked for something and it doesn't happen, it's nice to be able to pick up the phone and Yes. You know, just share it with a friend, share it with your husband, your family, my brother. I yes. just, you know, I think that's to me very, very important, having that support system. And I am who I am because I have a phenomenal support system. I'm really blessed with that touch wood. Hmm. No, it's so critical, I agree with you, uh, to, to, to have that support system around ourselves. I mean, particularly for... Again, all those change makers who are doing such all things every day in their lives. Uh, I like I like to finish with uh, the last question, uh, Jero, which is, what would be uh, to close this call? The top three must do that you would urge any social entrepreneurs or wannabe social entrepreneurs, maybe someone in this call saying, "Well, I'd love to become a social entrepreneur." After listening to Jero, what would be the top three must do? that, you know, they should plan to positively change the world? What would be your top three list to do? Well, the first would be be happy with yourself. <laughs> That's a great start. <laughs> you know? Yes. And uh, because I think uh, um, when you have that basic inner peace, it's uh, something which is very important to get things going. Two, be crazy and take the most boldest decisions and just run with it. Yeah. The more people tell you, the easier, you know? Yes. Okay. So the more crazy <laughs> you are, probably the more likely. And yeah. three, uh, you are to succeed. I really believe. So like when you had your idea, I'm sure people said it won't happen. And then you make it happen. Correct, JP? That's what <laughs> yeah. And three, I think, um, well, for me, it is just persevere. Hmm. Because... And don't take all the failures personally. I do also. I'm not trying to deny. Sometimes a good cry helps. <laughs> yes. But I think just, you know, okay, it's part of life. And um, you can't have everything positive always. But it's only when you have the negative can you appreciate the positive. So be happy. <laughs> That's what I'll say. <laughs> I, I love it. What, what, what a wonderful uh, closing, Jero. It's been, it's been really delightful to have this conversation with you and, and continue the dialogue with you, of course, uh, and your broad community of Community 23. But before closing, uh, Jero, I'd like to do what I'm, what I'm used to do, which is trying to capture, which is really hard, three takeaways from this very vibrant conversation. So I'm going to give it a shot. So 
bear with me because I'm sure that all of you taking other knots might agree or disagree is my top three <laughs> kind of takeaways. <laughs> you know, I, okay. I, I, I would start with uh, kind of your own words of positive energy. You said it's about having a strong sense of duty, really uh, building on spirituality and having an eternal optimism. That's my first one. The, the second one, it's about the point of view, which I think is so, uh, so key. Conflicts gets you nowhere. Be contradictory. Create a neutral space for all voices to be heard. And the third one, really had a challenge to pick uh, between a few favorites, but I would say I've tried to, to merge together. Be happy. Be crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, have passion bring a strategy and persevere all the time. And then you'll grow as a, as a change maker in the world. So with that, I'd like really from the bottom of my heart to thank you so much, Jiro. I hope you had uh, some good time having this exchange together. And really look forward to, to hearing from you. I mean, uh, not just in this forum, but, but way beyond and the impact you're having in the world. So thank you so much. And for all the listeners, thanks you, thank you for tuning in. And please, let's keep the feedback coming in. Thank you, Jiro. Thank you. And thanks a million. It was a great conversation. It was lovely chatting with you. And I have a lot of ideas I hope we can follow up on. Thanks. <laughs> we will. Thank you, Jiro. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.